this week on the Backtable podcast. You know, what's really been in interesting in kind of like scaling this technology is a lot of the people that you need to convince are not surgeons and they're not even healthcare professionals. And so what's really interesting about this space is everyone has very strong opinions and sort of preconceived ideas of what this should look like or what surgery even is. And so it, it takes a lot of like unlearning your talking because it's like people think of surgery as like, okay, you got a guy with a knife and let's like you're, you know, you're doing this like very like knitting almost or this like fine motor task and learning that is the hardest part. That's the most important part. And like, yes, those things are important, but I would say like 80% of it are learned very early on in our career, right? Like these building blocks, it's like notes on the piano or the guitar. Like you learn the notes, you learn the chords. And then what is our challenge? Our challenge is turning those into songs, into procedures. And stringing these known skills together is what is an ongoing and insurmountable challenge for us. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Backtable Innovation Podcast. You can find all of our previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on backtable.com. This is our next installment of the Backtable Innovation Show, where you'll hear stories from founders and physician entrepreneurs who are helping to drive healthcare forward through medtech innovation. I'm Eric Yonker, your host for this week, and I'm very excited to introduce my special guest, Dr. Justin Baran. Thanks so much for having me. So I'm, I'm very excited. I've been looking forward to this episode for a while because you and I sort of have this you know, sphere around each other, and I've been following you guys for a long time. You guys sort of started around the same time as the company I work with. So I've been very, very interested and, and very passionate about some of the stuff you do. So I'm very excited about this. The first thing I always ask people when they come on the show is, if somebody met you in a hallway and they didn't know who you were, what you do, anything about you, how would you actually introduce yourself? <laughs> I don't know. I'd, I'd probably be laughing and then they'd run in the other direction because I have kind of a frightening <laughs> laugh. But, you know, I introduce myself as Justin Broad. Um, you know, if someone asks what I do, I say I do a couple of things. I'm a uh, orthopedic surgeon. I'm also a healthcare entrepreneur and a pizza enthusiast. I love the pizza enthusiast. We'll get to that in a second because I'm from Chicago. So we're going to have a whole throwdown about pizza. And I live in New York now, so it's a big, big topic. We may derail this whole conversation, but it's always interesting to me that almost everybody who I've had on is they introduce themselves as a physician first. And I want to sort of dive into that right away into how has being a physician in this health tech space sort of staged everything that you've done to date and that you continue to do? I think, I mean, to answer that question, I really need to tell the story of how I became a doctor in the first place, which is kind of, I feel unusual. I love it. Origin stories are always welcome here. So, you know, really starts in middle school. And I mean, I'm really origining on the origin story here. And I was really passionate about video games, kind of obsessed with games. And I want to be a video game developer. And it was going really well. I had a game credit with Activision, which was such a cool experience. And then I had a family member who kind of became pretty ill, doing fine now, but it was kind of a scary time. And I just got this idea in my head that maybe there's a way to use software and technology, not necessarily for entertainment, but to help people. So really from then on, I set out in life to invent healthcare technology, but I had no idea how to get started with invention. So kind of asking around for advice and what to do and I was talking with actually my mom's gastroenterologist at breakfast, which is kind of a random story in itself. But, you know, he was hearing my story and what I wanted to do. And he told me, well, if you want to invent something, you really need to understand the problem you're trying to solve first. And he thought a great way to understand medical problems was to be a doctor. So I took his advice maybe a little too literally, I think, in retrospect, and uh, worked in his lab for a year. And then I got into med school at UCLA. And, and that's really how I got started. And I think being a doctor is, is a very special thing. I think probably the hardest thing about being really a full-time healthcare innovator entrepreneur is how much time do you take away from being a physician, if not all of your time. And a lot of people who are maybe thinking about going to med school or in med school or a healthcare professional, or they're like in the middle of their training or they're practicing, wrestle with this. This is like the hardest thing. And I don't think there's a pathway or clear-cut answer for anybody because it's really scary because your identity becomes one of someone that is a healthcare professional clinician, you take care of patients. And so I don't know, for me, I did med school at UCLA, I did my orthopedic surgery residency there, did a fellowship in Boston. And then I came back out to do the Stanford program at Stanford, I ended up dropping out of actually to go full time with Oso. And at that time, I thought, you know, that I was walking away from medicine completely that uh, I would never practice again. 
And, uh, you know, that was a really scary, very scary time for me. But I knew that the problem that I was tackling was more important. And I just had to, you know, do the right thing. Amazingly, I was able to continue to practice at Orthopedic Institute for Children. They're very flexible and they let me practice on weekends and do telemedicine clinics now. And I can continue taking care of patients and seeing patients. And what's interesting is there was a period where I wasn't. And there really is a big difference when you're not doing it at all versus, you know, when you're doing even a little bit. And I think especially other clinicians can tell when you're actively active clinically or seeing patients and when you're not, there's a way that you act, a way that you speak. You could just sort of like tell when someone's getting a little rusty and it's a reminder of, it's hard to describe, but obviously in technology, you can have a much bigger impact. You can help so many more people. But when you get that one-to-one interaction, I'll just tell this one story. It's the reason why I got into pediatric orthopedics. So I'm, I'm an orthopedic surgery resident. I'm on my peds ortho rotation. We had this patient who's had flown in from Liberia, untreated clubfoot, unable to walk the majority of his life. He was like 16. We did a you know, very sort of rough and dirty salvage procedure to get his foot under his ankle. It's not ideal, but you know, got his heel under his ankle. And I'm just coming into clinic and you know, I could see him in the other corner of my eyes there for a follow-up. And I could just see him grab his dad and he went, dad, dad, that's the guy that made it so I could walk again. And I just like, I went to the bathroom. I just like, you know, ball. I was just like, I was like, oh my God. And I'm doing this forever. And it's just like, you don't really get that when you're scaling up a huge technology is going to change the world. And it's amazing, but it's like that, that kind of intimate experience of where you're really feeling the help you're giving to someone and, and, you know, potentially changing their life. It's, there's nothing quite like it. And so, yeah, I think whether entrepreneurship or even pizza, I think I, I do lead with physician. That's fantastic. I think that's a great story. And I'd like to dive into that because, uh, you know, you and I actually were about a year apart because I was at BCH two years before you and I was there for a year. I think you came the year after me, but BCH was a great place. You know, just this global health type of experience there. You know, you had so many languages spoken at Boston Children's and just it was a fantastic place to practice. But, you know, I think that I want to dive in a little bit deeper because that's probably the most common question I get in this health tech space and the entrepreneurial space is, do I have to be a clinician still? Can I still be a clinician, right? So it's both ends of the spectrum. And I want to ask you about that a little bit later. When you were, we'll take you back to, not all the way back to middle school, but you know, when you were going through medical school and you had done this internship, you said you, know, you were accredited in Activision, which is fantastic. When you're going through medical school and residency, did you sort of know that you were going to have this hybrid role? Or did you sort of think like, I'm going to do clinical practice and do this other stuff on the side? Or were you like, hey, I'm just doing this. I think I'm going to do this other stuff and dabble a little bit in clinical. Did you sort of have that a mindset as you went into it? Oh, yeah. I would say that what I thought my life was would be like is completely the opposite of what it ended up as. I think in my mind, I was going to be this full-time academic clinician who comes up with ideas and then these like magical CEOs pop up and they're like, oh, I'll take that and run. And then it's just like this super successful thing and you're just like pumping them out and it's just like really easy. So that that was what I thought was going to happen. And then I had... I think I had a realization one day that I think one day I just kind of spent a week where I was just like really focused on, you know, this program I was doing at Stanford and, you know, nothing happened at OSOVR. And I, I realized that if I wasn't doing this, no one was going to do it. And it's really, I had to make a decision on whether I wanted this to address this problem or not. And that no one's going to, you know, just pick up this burden and run with it just magically that that was magical thinking. And as you went through that process, did you have mentors that you reached out to that gave you either either good advice or bad advice? Well, I'll take both. That sort of helped you guide your decision at that point. Yeah, very much. I mean, I think there there have been a lot of people who floated in and out of my life that have been so instrumental and valuable. And I think especially when you're scaling a startup and you have like, you know, maybe like three people who feel like the smartest people in the world and they all say three completely mutually exclusive things and you realize no one knows what they're doing is that's uh, both reassuring and scary. But, you know, when I was kind of facing really this, this crossroads, which was so terrifying for me and, you know, once again, a major identity crisis, I thought back to two moments in my life. One was I was interviewing for fellowship at a hospital for sick kids in Toronto. And I'm pretty sure no one read my personal statement or reads personal statements in general, because uh, I wrote about how I wanted my focus in my career to make the $6 million man and or the Terminator a reality. So I think if anyone had read that, they would have been like, oh, but this guy did read it. And I walked into the room and he just like, he's like, look, I could tell you're a little bit different than the other applicants. 
So I just want to give you some unsolicited advice. I'm like, okay, this is interesting. And he said, don't worry about what you think success is and to try to chase that down. He said, just, you're clearly very passionate. Just keep doing what you're passionate about and success will come from that. And if you focus on that, that, that will uh, lead you towards happiness and success. And the other one was um, way back when I was in college, uh, I was involved in the Greek fraternity system and Greek leadership. And I was at this Greek leadership retreat. And we were doing this activity called the tap of leadership. And in this activity, you sit down on the ground with your eyes closed and you wait for someone to tap you on the shoulder. And then when someone taps you on the shoulder, you can stand up, open your eyes, and you can tap others. And when everyone's standing up, the exercise is over. So we're kind of sitting there. I'm kind of like getting a little bored. And finally, I feel a tap on the shoulder. And so I stand up, tap other people. Exercise is done. And there are two facilitators. So they're like, okay, well, the person who got tapped first raised their hand. So this one guy raised his hand. And they had everyone guess. So they're like, who thinks that facilitator one tapped him first? And so, you know, you're kind of be like, oh, I heard him walking. I know they have bigger shoes. So it's like, you know, 50% people said facilitator one, 50% said facilitator two. And they're like, ask this guy, who tapped you first? And the guy said, I did. And that like blew my mind because I was really, my understanding of the exercise that in order to start this chain reaction, one of the facilitators had to decide who gets to stand up. But I never even thought for a second that someone could just tap themselves and decide to do that. And so these were really the two things I think that catalyzed really a life-altering decision for me, where one was I was going to pursue what I was passionate about. And what I was passionate about is, is solving a problem that I felt was existential to not only healthcare and the world in some way, shape, or form, but also the profession that I love more than anything, which I described earlier, but that this thing that I wanted to do with my life, to invent something, to start something, to create something from nothing. I was so in this medical mindset of like, you know, we're very high functioning, very ambitious, but we also were hoop jumpers. We're always waiting for the next step, the next degree, the next certification. And I just assumed that I needed someone to approve for me to do this. But what I realized in that moment that I just had to make a decision to kind of make that leap and that no one was going to tell me whether or not I could do it. Yeah. So those were the things that really stuck out to me in, in that pretty stressful moment of time. Yeah. I mean, you tapped yourself in. I mean, that's really kind of the moral of that story. I mean, it's so true. Nobody's going to do it. If you see it, just go for it and be passionate about it and, and, and drive towards it. I've had a lot of, you know, I, I'm in a similar pathway in such that I'm very much academic physician working in sort of this private technology sector. And I remember very clearly that I had one of the fathers of pediatric ENT at a conference. And I walked out to him and I said, you don't know who I am, but it's very an honor to meet you. And he said, what do you do? And I told him, I said, you know, I'm part-time clinical, part-time working for a technology startup. He looked me in the eyes and he said, what a waste of your education and walked away. Literally ended the conversation. So I want to ask you, have you had experiences like that where hardcore academics have walked up to you and gave you negative feedback and how that either drove you or how that affected you? Oh, yeah. I mean, I've had that exact same experience countless times. I think probably in the early days that that shook me a little bit. You know, I had I had someone tell me rather well-respected physician, even innovator, but basically that what I was going to do was going to fail and that I was burning every bridge and that I would never be able to go back to like mainstream medicine. It was like this irreversible decision. So that was pretty scary. And, you know, I don't think it's good to have like a chip on your shoulder or anything like that, but you know, it can be motivating to sort of, you know, <laughs> at the time there was really, I would get up really early and I'm like, everybody thinks I made a terrible life choice and this is going to fail. And it's up to me to prove them wrong. And the outcome of that is going to be awesome. It's win-win for everybody. So, you know, it was, was kind of highly motivating. And in the early days, there were, you know, part of the reason why I realized that you can't just hire some CEO off the street to like create something truly new. Because you have to convince people who are experts and really talented to join up with you when you have no money, no structure, no organization whatsoever, maybe the semblance of a demo or a product. And it's like pretty sketchy. <laughs> so you, you have to be able to get them like excited enough and fired up enough to join what is really kind of crazy when you think about it. like 99 point something percent of startups fail. So it's like it's not a rational decision. You have to be able to move someone into that kind of excited, irrational state, which is, you know, hopefully used for good and, and not for evil. So a lot of those people similarly were leaving something that was secure or stable and everybody felt very similarly. And 
And suddenly they had the same kind of like, well, I need to, I need this to work. So I need to prove this to my colleagues that this was actually a great life decision. And so, you know, that kind of thing can, if positioned correctly, right, you don't want to be worried too much about what other people are thinking or let that get to you. But it is a great feeling to just sort of show people what, what you got and kind of be that underdog and come out on top. Yeah, I think that underdog mentality is, is really the way to think about it and, and wanting to prove them wrong, which is sort of where, where I'm at. But I also think that some of those folks that you know came up to you, that came up to me, maybe some of the barriers to technology innovation and adoption. Have you had people who were naysayers who you sort of showed them the technology and sort of convinced them otherwise? And how'd you do it? Because I feel like there's still a lot of people who are latent naysayers. That's all they say. This isn't going to work. Well, you know, there's always going to be some of that in medicine in general. We're conservative by nature. And you, you could show someone that something that is like perfect and awesome and works in every way, shape or form. And they're going to be like, this is terrible. You know, this, this sucks. So it's, you know, that's just, it's the world we live in. And I think understanding that is really important when you're a healthcare innovator, that we're not rational beings, healthcare professionals, healthcare stakeholders, but we still behave predictably, but just not how you think. Um, and so if you kind of understand and can psychologically profile ourselves, you know, you can really start to understand how to get things adopted and how to convince people. And I think, you know, in the world of surgery, you know, we do VR surgical training and assessment and people immediately go to, well, you're trying to replace operating on patients or operating on cadavers, which is kind of like a sacred thing for us, right, as surgeons. And so that's a very scary thought. And we all know how important that all is. But what I would simply tell people is like, that's not what we're doing at all. We are supplementing that with objective assessment and also getting reps in before doing that so you can get more out of those experiences. When you say, hey, the thing you're really scared about actually isn't the thing that's happening, people suddenly start trusting you more because they hear immediately that you understand them and their concerns. And then they're willing to listen because they start to think, hey, maybe this person actually does know what I'm dealing with and isn't just this, you know, I, I think part of this is we have so many people coming in who are like, hey, everything sucks, but I'm a tech genius. And if you use this thing, everything's going to be awesome. And all you healthcare professionals are idiots. And that's how kind of a lot of people who come from like pure tech backgrounds sound to us when they, they come in and they just don't understand like all the history and, and all the egos that they're trampling over. And they're just like, well, this is objectively better. So like, why would you use anything else? And they don't understand just all these dynamics. So if you come in and you just, you show a little empathy, you show a little understanding and you reposition things, I think people are much more open-minded to it. And then you just also accept that there are going to be people that, that aren't, and, and that's okay. And you always need to make sure that you are respectful to everybody that you interact with, because you just never know what's going to happen down the road. Absolutely. And I, I think immediately those folks get defensive because you're sort of treading on their waters, you know. But I think it goes back to when you talked about being a clinician first, that understanding that you have some semblance of understanding of their plight and their situation. And obviously with any negotiation, finding common goals, right? You want your trainees to be better when they're actually taking care of patients. We're augmenting that or we're supplementing that. And I think that's what sort of getting away from that defensive response, like you're invading on my territory, I think goes a long way with sort of making a common goal and moving towards that. I think that it's so much more complex than that too. You know, I think there's, there's a lot of emotion tied up in, in what's happening right now. I think healthcare is going through a bit of a difficult time. And I think you see what's happening in tech and how fast people's careers can move in tech. And I think some people don't want things to be successful because it's not, it doesn't feel fair. You know, I think there's, I'm trying to sort of bridge our two worlds because I thought the world was a certain way when I was a resident or a doctor and that you had to go through a certain path and then almost immediately getting out of that shell, like within weeks, I realized there's a whole wide world open for us and that, you know, there's a lot of different ways to do things and to handle work and organizational structure and allowing people to take credit who maybe are less senior there's so much stuff. And I, I think that there are a lot of, I would say, it's not like a real conflict of interest, because I don't think people realize it's a conflict of interest, but th there is a very strong incentive to keep things the way they are, you know, and I, I don't think it's anybody's fault. And I don't think they realize it's happening. But there's, there's a system that's been built up over centuries that is like very high inertia. 
And so I, I think there's an element of that as well, of this, this like, you know, messing with the status quo. And I think there are two things I always point to with this dynamic. One is technology innovation is hard, even for me. And it's like, everything's a joke until it's not right. Like all these technologies, they seem kind of crazy. And, you know, you look at robotics and in the early days of robotics, people laughed at it. People laughed walking around with these little, like, you know, they look like toys and, and now it's everywhere and it's, you know, showing a lot of positive data and, and patients love it. So it's just like, you know, how, how are you supposed to know when it really is a joke or not? And even I wrestle with that. So I think that's a, a very hard problem to solve. Absolutely. I mean, the whole tech world and the credibility uh, aspect of it is so hard, which is why, again, going back to having clinicians and, and experts on your team that sort of understand that dynamic. And I want to go back to that, actually, and build on that, because as you were going through medical school and residency and fellowship, we don't have entrepreneurship and business in our medical school. We probably should, which is a whole different conversation. But how did you sort of have that insight into figuring out, okay, this is where I want to go. I really think this is a really good idea. How do you decide, okay, you, you were talking about the Stanford Biodesign Program and you know trying to upskill yourself. Obviously, you don't have an MBA or a business background. So how did you decide how to educate yourself, who to bring on to help educate you and, and seek out for mentors? Well, I think the biodesign program and Stanford is a great program. Now they're, they have similar programs at UCLA and TMC. So that's a great place to get started. I kind of separate the idea of innovation and business because I, I think they're a bit different. Obviously, it is important to understand business. I think one of the first things that I think we need to get more comfortable with the medicine in general is that business and money can be bad things. But if you don't understand it at all, it could be much worse. And so I think we are almost like religious or dogmatic about like not discussing business or money at all. And I think it, you know, just gets the system overall in trouble. And then people who really want to do things that are positive and make positive change, like maybe get an MBA or do a program like this. And I think this is changing, but are viewed negatively. So I had friends who were considering getting MBAs, but were worried that it would sort of decrease their chances of getting into a good training program, which is, you know, not what we want. I think what, you know, you and I are pushing for is People like us should be included into the fold and not ostracized because then you're not a part of the conversation. I think the other point I wanted to make earlier is if you just stonewall progress and you stonewall innovation, it can have really drastic consequences. I think all of the time of the profession of cardiothoracic surgery, which is like pretty freaking amazing what they do. But when they were approached by early innovators for, you know, it's like, hey, here's a way to do your surgery, but, you know, kind of minimally invasively just through a vein. They really laughed it off. And so, you know, they're looking around to find some sort of clinician that would like, you know, work with this. And now we have the subspecialty of interventional cardiology and structural heart. And a lot of care has gone in that direction. And that's been kind of a seismic shift for that specialty. And it's like, I always want to make sure that we are a part of these conversations as a profession so that we don't run into situations like this where it gets away from us. And because we really refuse to acknowledge the wave of change that was taking place. So back to me with the whole business and innovation thing. I think biodesign was helpful. I was writing about medical innovation for like about a decade for MedGadget, kind of helped get a little bit of a lay of the land and things like that. But I'll say, I mean, I think I jumped into it with a bit of a surgeon's ego. I'm like, how hard can it be if I, I do surgery? And that, that was, I mean, a disaster. Like I remember like one of my first pitch meetings, they started asking me about like, what's your LTV and your CAC and your gross margins and your five-year forecast and your PL? And like, I literally didn't know what any of that meant, like at all. And I'm just like trying to fumble through it. That didn't work out, by the way. So I was humbled very quickly, which is, I think, is very important for clinicians that do want to be involved in innovation and healthcare is that you really have to come in as a team player and an open mind. There's a lot you know, but there is even more that you don't. I think one of the things we learn in medical school and as clinicians is to be lifelong learners. And so I have been learning very rapidly and getting up to speed. The last thing I'll say is that everybody in the early days is like, oh, well, you need to get a business person. You need to find someone to help with the business. And, you know, we did like a little bit of that, like brought in like a consultant or something like that. And, and I could say it was almost immediately unhelpful because if you're really creating something new, you're not creating a business, you're creating a product. And so it's like, you know, you really need to focus on need-based innovation, identifying the problem you're trying to solve and building around that. And that isn't necessarily what you learn by getting an MBA. Now, as you start to scale, those things really do start to matter and you want to bring that in, but you only have so much time in the early days. So you know, trying to build like an operational business on day one is not necessarily what like a new category startup 
really need to be spending all of their time on. It's important to do it a little bit. I see a lot of people falling into that trap of like, oh, well, if I have someone who understands business, this is all going to be easy. And you really need someone that understands product. Yeah, that's so true. I mean, you have to have a good product that has an obvious value to the end user. So take me back to that time point when you're like, okay, I'm going to do this. What did tomorrow look like? Like, you're like, okay, let's do this. And then tomorrow you're like, okay, I have a business. Take me back to that point. And specifically, when did you realize I have something here? This has legs. This is actually going to have a potential to be something bigger. It all kind of just came together. I wouldn't say it was like really a a well thought out plan. You know, just to give you an example, I met my co-founder on the internet on like a random message board, like a VR enthusiast message board, you know, and, uh, you know, he's like looking for work in serious VR. And I'm like, great. He's like, well, you have to pay me. And, you know, I had been making minimum wage. So luckily I had some money saved up for my bar mitzvah. So thank you, grandma, grandpa. That that really uh, came (laughs) Those Israeli bonds went to some good. (laughs) (laughs) So when we had submitted it to what we had built together, like this kind of prototype to a conference and we won an award. And so we won like, you know, $15,000 of free legal services. I'm like, oh my God, like we're rich. That lasted like a day. <laughs> um, so we, you know, we incorporated. And then this was when like VR then was what I guess metaverse is now, right? It was like sort of the technology du jour. So if you just had VR in your company title, people started reaching out to you. So like literally I had like an investor being like, hey, do you want $200,000? And I'm like, sure. I, like I, I didn't really know what to do. So, and all of a sudden it was like in a bank account. And then, you know, a couple of other people invested. Suddenly we had like $400,000, like sitting in a bank account. I did not touch it or spend a single cent because I was so terrified that like the second I spend a penny, like I start on this treadmill and there's just like, it felt like there was no going back. And so while all of this is happening, I'm, I'm doing this program at Stanford, which is fantastic, but I'm like trying to split my time between two full-time jobs and I was doing a pretty terrible job at both. And so at some point, like I just kind of get called in and be like, hey, like, I think you need to make a decision between these two things. So I was like really stressed out. I almost immediately got in a car accident, like hit like an ambulance, like because I was just like so in my head. Everyone was fine, but I found it kind of ironic. So, you know, eventually walked in and said, I'm going to do what I'm passionate about, right? Tap of leadership. So I'm going to do this Oso thing. So the next day I'm like at a Starbucks by myself working remotely with a guy I met on the Internet. And my like, you know, my phone's blowing up. My mom's like texting me. It's like, everyone's worried about you. Please call. And so it's pretty terrifying and a pretty interesting time. And, you know, I just I had no idea where it would all go. That's so crazy. I mean, that takes such courage. I like literally courage is the word that comes to mind because you're basically like made this decision. You you go all in. You're like, I don't know if this is going to work. And then you start figuring out, OK, what do I do now? So who were, you know, besides you and your co-founder, who were some of the first people you brought on to the team when you started to sort of notice that it was getting traction? Yeah, I think the team scaled, I guess, slowly over time. Some people we brought on, you know, I had a random medical illustrator reach out to me and he was like, oh, I, you know, saw some stuff you did on the internet and it looks really interesting. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, I, I don't know what a medical illustrator is, but I don't think we need any. He's like, well, let me tell you why I think you do. And like, at the time I'm like, I'm in a motel. I think I was like at the Quality Inn in King City, like doing locums, like to just try and like afford rent in the Bay Area. And clearly, like I'm, I'm like skyping with this guy, and he's like, I must come off as like a very sketchy person. But you know, eventually he convinced me, and so you know, we brought him on as an intern, and now he's the director of the world's largest medical illustration team. We have like 45 oh medical illustrators at OSOVR. That's so awesome. <laughs> That's so awesome. Another guy I had met at a cadaver lab when I was in fellowship and, you know, I was kind of talking about technology and someone's like, I have a friend that is like a little zany like you. I think you're really going to like. So introduce me to this guy, Leif Gorenson at Medtronic. And, you know, we were talking to each other and one day he calls me and he's like, I'm ready. And I'm like, yeah. And we were just talking about this last week. I was like, I don't think you want this. <laughs> this is like very, <laughs> still very ramshackle and chaotic. He's like, no, we're doing this. And so, you know, he left. He had been at Medtronic his whole career. Uh, his family that works there. And he like really just believed in what we were doing that was going to change the world. And everybody there told him the same thing, that he was making a terrible career choice. And now he's VP partner success, runs a huge team at Oso. It's like uh, pretty crazy. So, you know, there are all these stories where, you know, these people who are like just big believers are the best of the best, like kind of made these big leaps, especially in those early days, now running very large teams. So it still is happening today. Like we have some pretty incredible people joining, like, you know, people joining from Intel, from Sony, from Pinterest, it's uh, industrial light and magic. It's, it's pretty nuts. And that has been my favorite part of this, that 
in that early day, I felt like I was on, on an island and a crazy person that I saw something that nobody else saw and I didn't care. I just, I wanted to solve this problem more than anything in the world. And then slowly you realize that other people actually do see the same thing enough so that they'll make big life moves and, and risks to try and join up and help. And I mean, that is the best feeling in the world. And you're like, wow, that you're not alone and that together we can do this. You know, you can, that's what this whole process is about. It's about bringing people together to solve a common problem. And whether it's people that join the team, whether it's healthcare professionals who are using or researching or advocating for the product, patients who are excited about it, investors who want to make the world a better place and invest in it. It's all about getting people bought in on this story of a better future and, and really believing in it and then actually making that happen, right? Not, it's not all hype. You got to execute. But that, that has been the most amazing part of this process to go where you really feel like you're like, am I eating too much pizza? And has it all gone to my head? Or like, is this, is this a real thing? And, you know, I could tell you definitively and like, you know, you're in a very similar space that this is very real. Oh, very real and very needed. I think, I think everybody realized and somebody just needed to tap in to be able to lead this charge. And I, I definitely think you are the one. We're going to talk about VR hype in a second because you brought it up. But uh, I have to ask, how did Oso get its name? And did it have a name before Oso? It's always been Oso VR. So you can tell I'm a little bit obsessed with food. And then, as you know, orthopedic surgeons were a little bone centric. So favorite dish of my grandfather's was Oso Buco. And Oso means bone in Italian. So you know, we got our start in orthopedics. It is a universal simulation platform, can be used for any procedure, but really got our start with a little, you know, tongue in cheek bone slash food reference. I love it. I love it. Food is pervasive in your life. I love it. I had some questions about as you scaled and as you brought on the team, there's this thing called the pandemic that happened. Heard of that. And yeah, and you happened to get some major funding during the pandemic. How do you think the pandemic affected sort of your company's growth positively, negatively? And what was the silver lining of the pandemic for you? Well, I mean, any talk related to the pandemic, I just want to say what a terrible thing this has been, right? It's like always feels weird saying like, oh, this really good thing happened as a result because it has negatively affected so many people, especially healthcare professionals. It's like, a, it's, it's still a hard time. So it's just really important to say that. I think for us, it made what was an becoming an increasingly obvious problem, I think, inescapable. And especially not just for healthcare professionals where, I mean, I was just reading an article in the BBC where in Northern Ireland, the case volume has gone down to 5% of what it normally is for orthopedic residents. And they're seriously discussing holding people back a year. It's like, it's worse than people think, you know? So, you know, we do a lot of work with the medical device industry and this was made it almost impossible for them to do business without something like Oso or other digital transformation tools that they're looking at. Like a lot of exciting stuff is happening in the uh, telementoring and remote proctoring space. So I'll say that it made the problem obvious to put us kind of center stage. And, you know, right around the same time, there's the release of the Oculus Quest and the Quest 2. So there's just a lot of things all happening at the same time, which were a really big accelerant. And, you know, some of our partners, a lot of people, you know, wanted to ride it out a little bit at first. So I wouldn't say it was all positive, but some people had the foresight to say, Hey, this is potentially going to change the way the world works for a long time, if not forever. And it takes time to change, to enact digital transformation. So, you know, within weeks, the decision was made to like triple, quadruple down and that we need to go all in on this right now. If we were going to, you know, I, I like to say, be sort of the Forrest Gump shrimping boat in this kind of hurricane world, right? It's like you want to be the only one that, that really weathered the storm. And so there, there was a, a bit of that that happened that was a big tailwind for us. It, you know, hasn't all been positive. The very partners that we do business with didn't have much to do business with, right? They you know, had some revenue shortfalls and some challenges. So it's kind of kind of bumpy goes. And then it's been hard for everyone. The pandemic, people have family members or themselves gotten ill or have lost people. It's been you know, a challenging time. I will say the one thing that we were kind of uniquely positioned about, not just that we do virtual training, and that is like a perfect solution for today's day and age. But we actually started as a fully remote company. So if you remember, my co-founder, Matt, lived in Vancouver. I was in the Bay Area and we each brought something different to the table. I wanted to make sure that Oso VR was 
mission-driven, that people had the same feeling working at Oso that I had the same feeling I had when I walked into that peds clinic, right? Like, I, I want that to be what working at Oso is like. And for Matt, he was so traumatized from his experience at Electronic Arts, he never wanted to walk into an office building again. And he's like, you know, I want this company to be fully remote and VR enabled. And I, I was like, honestly, a little skeptical of that idea, but I'm like, I got to keep this guy on board. So I'm like, sure. And we've been fully remote since day one. And that really enabled us to kind of like glide into this pandemic and really continue operating really well because it's the only way we've ever worked. Such a huge decision and it worked out really, really well. Our company had to pivot, you know, to be remote and we're still not quite totally, but for the most part we are. But I think in healthcare education specifically, that the pandemic, like you said, there were learning major learning losses at surgical programs. People who literally couldn't fill their case logs with education. And I think that the idea of doing asynchronous or synchronous remote training in surgical education was really not something that people talked about. And now it's literally everybody's talking about it. I always say the future is hybrid, right? We, we both said that we're not going to completely replace at the bedside training, but the question is, is can residents and trainees be better prepared when they are at the bedside? And I think remote training is the answer. Yeah, I mean, it's now it's it just it's so obvious, right? So in, the problem is so intense, but it's, you know, before it was still a pretty big problem. And, you know, you just we're so busy all the time. We're running around like no one really has the time to just sit down and kind of like look at how it works today, especially at some of the bigger programs. Like, you know, if you think about it, Residents at bigger programs, they're rotating between different attendings. And everyone's always talking about, oh, the learning curve, the learning curve. And I like to talk about something called the trust curve. So when you have a resident operating with you, you don't just immediately like hand them the knife. You're like, go to town. I had a couple of attendings <laughs> that did do that. And I'll be back in an hour. <laughs> not always go through all the patient, which is like scary. But um, you watch them, right? You, you, you kind of like see how they help you. You can ask them some questions. And they're rotating between a lot of different attendings. Sometimes it could be like 30, right? Like at Boston Children's Hospital, there are like 30 something different peds attendants, like nuts that we're bouncing between. So by the time anyone feels pretty comfortable with you, maybe it's like a month, a month and a half in the rotation. And then it's like, you're almost done. And then they're like, okay. And this is very common. Like your last day on the rotation, they're like, why don't you take a shot on goal? And these procedures, we do now have a learning curve of like 50 to 100 cases. So to do a two to three month rotation and get one rep in, is zany, right? And so it's not just about, it's like there are all these other issues that are like actually pretty simple if you just like kind of like look at the dynamics and kind of like create a quick spreadsheet. But, you know, it's like, well, if we had objective data that someone knew the steps and I would feel comfortable with, could we get them twice as much reps? Could we get them five times as many? And then, you know, you're not even talking about the learning curve progression that happens from simulation. You're just talking about this one component, right? And it's very multifactorial, but it's like, Breaking things down of like, how does this work? How does adult learning work? How do we learn? And how can we make the system more efficient? Or how can we standardize? Another example is a very common procedure we do is distal radius fracture. And we get those when we're on our hand rotation. One of my co-residents, for whatever reason, over two months, no one got in a skateboard injury or got hit by a car, right? And so he never did one. And it's like, do we really want to rely on just random chance <laughs> to like train people? It's just like, it's very interesting. And so everything has been I mean, just push to the limit now where it's like, it's hard to ignore, but it's not like these dynamics didn't exist before. And really, I think the pandemic shed a light on some of these deficiencies because it just made it much, much more obvious that the idea that you would just wait for something to come in the door and that was your experience was just a crazy way to train people for a career that they may have to do stuff like that or stuff that they've never even seen before. It's just a crazy thing to think about. And I think that's why a lot of the discussion around graduate medical education is going towards entrustable professional activities as, as opposed to milestones. Because the question is, do you trust this person to operate on a patient on their own when they graduate here? And that's, I think, a better question than did they hit this milestone, you know? Or, you know, just, just or have they been there for a certain amount of time, which is really what it is. And also the idea of just just waiting for something to happen, right? That's I think that is the perfect description of residency is waiting around for five to seven years. And then the problem that I saw is like, okay, you look at residency and like doing surgery is pretty freaking cool. But you look at what you have to do to get there. And then you look at these other careers where it's like, you're just going at a thousand miles per hour. And you're doing you're changing the world and you're moving very quickly and you're making a life for yourself and your family with no debt, and uh, not like physically grueling and demanding things. And I worry that 
the people we want to be on the front line taking care of patients and doing all this work are, are not going to want to do it anymore because there didn't used to be a disconnect this big. We're not keeping up with mainstream industries in terms of just like what is perceived as reasonable. Absolutely. I, I totally agree. I want to get into some specific questions around VR and, and VR training. I hear a lot of questions about, okay, you know, I, you're training me in VR. I'm using this joystick or, you know, if I'm using Go, you know, natural hand gestures. This isn't the device we're actually going to be using. This is not my drill. What is your answer to those folks when they're saying, how, do, how is somebody supposed to train on my device when they're not actually holding my device? Yeah, I mean, this is probably the most common question that we get. And, you know, I give hours long lectures on it. I won't do that here. I'll try and keep it very simple. One is that we actually just had our third positive peer-reviewed randomized clinical trial accepted for publication. So the data shows that this form of simulation with an off-the-shelf headset and two controllers for your hands with cutaneous haptics works and, and works really well, like more than simulators in the past that did really emphasize those exact, like, hey, you're holding the exact drill and there's this kinesthetic haptics and things like that. But I think there's just sort of a philosophy here of scalability that we need to talk about where imagine that we have a perfect simulator where it's it's 100% realistic. We solved every problem, but only 10 people can use it a year and they can only use it one or two times. Now, imagine just for the sake of argument, I'm not saying this is the case, but you have a simulator and it's 80 to 90% as realistic, but you can get it to 1.1 million surgeons around the world. You can get it to 60 million healthcare professionals around the world and every single one of them can use it every single day to train on whatever procedure they need to. Oh, not to mention that others perfect simulator can only train you on one single surgery, right? And so what's the difference in tr of area under the curve of those two approaches, right? What is the total value delivered? And it's, it's not even a contest, right? It's like orders and orders and orders of magnitude difference. And that's why I think that at the end of the day, accessibility, as long as something is realistic enough, trumps the fidelity by orders of magnitude. Because if you can't, you know, we, we at Simulation Center at UCLA and like yeah, at the end of a 30 hour shift, they're like, oh, feel free to drive 10 miles in L.A. traffic to go to the Simulation Center. I'm like, I'll just, uh, you know, get someone to sign in for me. Right. That's just what everyone ends up doing. And, you know, been simulation centers where they're amazing and they're like funded by NASA and it's like have everything. And I'm like, how often do people come by? And they're like, maybe once a year. Right. So it's like, what is that actually doing for anybody? Right. As cool as that that all is. And as realistic as that all is, and I think that's really important for us to like, once again, just like look at the numbers and, and be like, how do we scale this and how do we deliver value consistently for everybody and not just a very tiny, tiny subset or even value that won't be seen because you can't learn anything by just doing something once a year. Oh, absolutely. I think accessibility is the underlying obvious thing that both of our you know companies have definitely realized. I think the other thing is, is the idea of unhooking the psychomotor from the technical or mechanical skills and understanding that actually there's so many cognitive skills that are going into surgery that you don't even realize that actually if you have to do the cognitive skills and the mechanical or technical skills at the same time, it actually makes it way harder. So if you actually learn those cognitive and those judgment and the decision making before you ever actually get the device in your hand, you're actually better to focus on the mechanical and technical aspects of how to actually operate that device. And also experts know how to use it already. You know, what's really been interesting in kind of like scaling this technology is a lot of the people that you need to convince are not surgeons and they're not even healthcare professionals. And so what's really interesting about this space is everyone has very strong opinions and sort of preconceived ideas of what this should look like or what surgery even is. And so it, it takes a lot of like unlearning your talking because it's like people think of surgery as like, okay, you got a guy with a knife and let's like you're, you know, you're doing this like very like knitting almost or this like fine motor task and learning that is the hardest part that's the most important part and like yes those things are important but i would say like 80 percent of it are learned very early on in our career right like these building blocks it's like notes on the piano or the guitar like you learn the notes you learn the chords and then what is our challenge our challenge is turning those into songs into procedures and stringing these known skills together is what is an ongoing and insurmountable challenge for us I know how to use a drill. I know how to use a saw. I know how to dissect, but I don't know how to do a submuscular femur plating when I haven't done it in two years. And so I print out the steps and I paste it up against the wall. And, you know, we all do this. And so I think that's the first thing, right? And it's not just you. I think that's another misconception that surgery, like 
we're like this superhero that like crashes in through the ceiling, does a superhero landing, and then it's like does the surgery and runs out the door. And it did kind of used to be that way, but now it is much more of a team sport, especially with newer approaches, like a thousand times so for any enabling technologies like robotics that everybody has an important role. So for example, like, you know, if we we're doing an anterior hip replacement, if the circulator nurse wasn't familiar with the bed, we just cancel the case because it's like you couldn't get through it fast enough to be safe. And so it's like everybody needs to know what to do. And if you are not only worried about what you're going to be doing, but you're running around trying to get other people to do what they need to do, that's a cognitive load that just intense. And suddenly even just like simple things that you're trying to keep track of can really throw you off. And you don't have time to focus on the highly complex stuff that can be dangerous and throw you off. And the final thing I'll say is that obviously we're still doing a lot of traditional surgery and all these things are important, but more and more what surgery is and the skills are required, I see it, it's changing. And it's, it's less about the technical and the fine motor, while those are important. And I mean, at Boston Children's Hospital, I operated with some best surgeons I've ever worked with in my life. I'm like, I, I could never do that, like with my hands if I wanted to, you know, just like some really cool dissection stuff. But more and more, surgery is much more about planning. And then it's almost like executing through software, right? It's like, you know, whether you're talking about navigation or to some extent robotics, endoscopy, it's less and less about just sort of like you and getting your hands inside a patient. You're more like, operating the machinery of the team and, and the actual equipment to kind of execute on some kind of plan that's much more well thought out than it used to be. And that skill set is kind of wildly different from what we're taught in kind of medical school and, and residency and fellowship, and sometimes not at all, depending on where you are. So the skills that you need to learn are changing really rapidly too. And they tend not always to be much less in the fine motor category. And so I think that's another trend that I don't think people are really thinking too much about when they're thinking about like what this technology really should look like. That's so true. And I, I mean, that judgment, that planning, that strategy that comes into the OR is something as residents, you never really see, you, you never know how the patient actually got to the OR. Very few, especially surgical residents really don't do clinic. They're just like, the patient's here, I need to do this, right? You know, so, but they don't think about all of the mastery that went into the planning and the strategy and things that they decided not to do which are things that definitely like the, the fine motor is fantastic. And there's unbelievably skilled surgeons, but a surgeon without a plan is somebody who's dangerous. And a surgeon with a plan is a much, much better surgeon for the patient and has better outcomes. Yeah. I mean, often, you know, they always say the, the best surgeon is one that can get you out of anything, right? It's, it's not necessarily being good at plan A, but having plan B, C, D, et cetera. And I think, you know, flight analogies in medicine are used ad nauseum, but I do find them very useful. And, you know, it's, you think of a, the first time I, I got to fly in the cockpit of a plane, like with a pilot and, you know, I was like a little shocked, like in my mind, you know, they'd be just like, whoa, like moving a uh, steering all over the place. And it's really, I mean, they're operating with a computer, right. And they're just kind of typing in coordinates and updating it every now and then. And that's like 90% of what's going on. And yeah, you need to know how to do the other stuff in case you kind of need to switch over to that. But I see surgery more and more heading in that direction all the time where it's like, it's much more, like you say, of this cognitive process and you do need to understand 3D spatial relationships and kind of 2D to 3D mental modeling, but it's shifting away, but not completely. It's still very important, but a lot of sort of the emphasis on kind of the hands-on fine motor. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You can get me talking about education for hours. And I think that scares people, honestly. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, absolutely. It's scary for people who, who don't really realize who aren't even on the other side of the curtain to even see it. Well, I think, I mean, like, I think of music, right? Like, I feel like to be in a band, like you play an instrument, you had to sing. And I, I think like the idea of, oh, well, I have a laptop and then I'm just like playing music over the speakers. Like, well, that's, you're not a musician. That's not music. But now, now that is, and it's some of the most popular stuff that we listen to. Right. And it's like, I see that shift happening, right? It's like, Oh, if you're not like slicing someone open end to end and seeing all of their insides and just like, you know, just have their bone bits all over your face, then you're not doing real surgery. But I do see that there's more and more comfort where we're doing surgery, maybe through a screen or through a console. But it is a very interesting shift because for a certain group, that hands-on thing is, is a level of emotional satisfaction for them that they don't want to lose. Understand it's, it's, it feels great, but it's, I think there are people that are able to get that same satisfaction from a different way of doing things. And that shift will take time, but you do see that taking place. Yeah, and luckily, you know, we, we have now a generation of trainees that played video games growing up. 
And so, you know, we know that action video game players have better surgical abilities when it comes to laparoscopic surgery, endoscopy surgery, robotic surgery, those types of skill sets. So luckily, they're prepared a little bit better for that type of input uh, as opposed to the open surgical, which was pretty much everything 50 years ago. Yeah, I got very excited when I saw that study published. I know, I know. I was so excited. <laughs> I was like, this is made me awesome. feel better about my, uh, my addiction. But the best part is, is that people who weren't action video game players who played action video game players still did get better. They didn't get as good as the ones who actually grew up playing it, but it's still a trainable skill, which is a really important thing. Yeah, I think, you know, I see a lot of people talking about that study and that sort of like assumption. And I have seen people who have never touched a video game in their lives, like crush virtual reality. So I'm not sure it's as strong of a correlation necessarily. Agreed, agreed. Yeah, it's not, it's not the only thing. But yeah, there's definitely people who take to it better, yeah. I think, I think it certainly can change sort of your expectations. Like I think they're this sort of next generations coming out. They, they expect things to be a certain way. And like, you know, I can see people just like, I used to show people Osevier and they're like, whoa, this is so new. And then now I show it to people and they're like, yeah, I mean, this is how it's supposed to be, right? Like, so it's like much more so that they, they see that this is how it should be um, and less of like, this is like a wild and crazy thing. Yeah, absolutely. How a decade has changed things. So we're going to do a, just a few more questions and, and then we'll let you go. One is, is I can't have you on here without talking about VR hype. I think there is unfortunately a lot of stuff that's being done in virtual reality that is really not hitting the mark. You know, I've seen at conferences where they're doing 2D animations in VR while people are sitting down. I see them interfacing with a PowerPoint in VR. Like what, what is going on here with VR and how do we push the limits and bring everybody else to sort of the expectation of here is the value add that VR brings. How do we get there with everybody? Well, I think a lot of that is changing as the field matures and you're seeing a lot of that kind of fade away, both on the hardware side, there's been a lot of consolidation and then kind of on the technology side, right? There just aren't as many companies flying around as there once were approaches or technologies. I think, you know, what I tell people is this is much less of an issue now, but there was this period of time where everyone had tried VR and a lot of it was like Google Cardboard or some sort of like really oddball experience that made them puke instantly, you know, and they're like, oh, I tried VR, like it's, it doesn't work. And I'm like, well, if you saw a bad movie, does that mean all movies are bad? Right. It's like, it really depends on the experience and the design and the quality. And I think part of what I realized with Oso is early on, I was very sort of, I would say utilitarian about our approach. Like it just needs to work. Right. And you heard, you know, my accessibility versus fidelity. Right. And so there wasn't a huge focus on making it look great or even exciting, like it was just very functional. And there was a moment in time where like someone accidentally changed like a lighting setting or something like that. And all of a sudden people are like, whoa, what did you do? Like invest another million of dollars in this? This is amazing. And I was kind of like surprised. And I, I realized that while it might not change the clinical outcomes, once again, if no one was using it, then it, it wouldn't work. And so here was an area where we could invest in that would get people excited, that would stand out and look very different from everything that was out there because it was very confusing because there's all these different VR offerings and they just kind of like all look the same. And so, you know, we brought in like literally like Oscar and Emmy winning team. And now we have this art studio that rivals what you'd find at Disney. And, you know, our, our visuals have become our, our calling card. And, you know, I, I think a lot about Andreas Vesalius and I won't get in this whole story, but how he used art to overturn Galenic medicine. And we're trying to use art to sort of inspire everyone and get them excited about this approach and this technology, not necessarily like VR in general, but just get them to try, get them in there so they can see the promise and the potential. But this is a problem in every technology space, right? There's this early kind of rush. Uh, you're seeing it now in Web3. Who knows what the heck is going to happen over there? It's like a zillion things. You saw it in AR and, and you saw it in VR. And I think what people told us when we were really like in thick of that hype wave almost immediately is that you guys are actually really tackling a real problem here. It's like very obvious. Like when we told them, it's like, here's the problem. And then here's what we're trying to do. Like, here's kind of like mission accomplished. It immediately made sense to people. And I think that's part of how you can kind of cut through this cloud of just, you know, if someone is showing you technology, be like, okay, what, tell me what the problem you're trying to solve is. And then like, how does this solve that problem? I think that's part of it. And then, you know, the technology, I find it very easy for people to fall into this kind of like innovation demo trap where, you know, you can spend a lot of time making something cool and it could get people really excited, but to scale that up, you know, and to scale it to millions of healthcare professionals and billions of patients, that is like really hard to do. And, and that has 
to be able to do that and execute on that scale has a huge amount of value. But to an individual, they don't see the scale. They don't understand the scale. And so to them, that does not have a lot of intrinsic value. They're looking at a very micro level. So that's another interesting kind of area where I, I kind of think, you know, you were alluding to training us in innovation, not just to innovate, but to assess innovation, I think is really critical, especially as you're just seeing this stuff accelerate and not slow down in any way, shape or form. Absolutely. I, I truly think moving past the modality to see what the content is and what the product actually is, instead of just saying, oh, this is VR, let's let's support it, let's fund it, really see what those people are trying to do. And I think you're you're very hit the nail on the head as far as that's concerned. I have a, a few quick hit questions and then I'll get you out of here. Hit me. First question, are innovators born or bred? Oh, <laughs> uh, both. And yeah, I started my first company when I was six. It was a detective agency and I've been doing it my oh whole my life. God. How's it doing? How's that company doing? <laughs> I, I think we have like $10 in the bank account. <laughs> so pretty well. I mean, I haven't looked at inflation adjusted dollars, but um, I have friends who are innovators who've done it their whole lives, but I have people who did it later in life. So I think anybody can do it. But certainly I think if you know, you've always had that itch and you've always been doing it, you may have some advantages from just sort of skills you picked up and, and networks you built along the way and, and failures, lots of failures. Oh, absolutely. Lots of failures. Exactly. What advice do you have for other people? Let's say I'm a physician in practice and I'm interested in getting involved in technology or, you know, in entrepreneurship, innovation. What should I do tomorrow? Uh, watch my TED talk. No. Um, yeah, exactly. Eat some pizza and oh, watch I def- his TED definitely talk. say eat some pizza. <laughs> um, but I asked someone once, I'm like, what can I do tomorrow? This same question to sort of like help, help me be more successful here. And they told me to build your network, just meet one person new every day and have them introduce you to two people. And over time, you'll have a network of thousands of people that you just, you don't know that like, I can't tell you the number of times, like I met some guy named like Travis. And then like years later, he's been instrumental in some sort of like ultra critical thing I could have never have foreseen. So I would say just build your network and just constantly be meeting new people is probably the single most important thing I've ever done. That's so true. And I have to admit that being in this space, everybody is so kind and nice and reaching out and giving advice. Everybody's so free in this space. And I think we've talked about on previous podcasts is take action, reach out to those people, strike up a conversation, whatever it is uh, to try and build that network because people in this space have been so nice and so kind. And you as especially, and I appreciate everything that you've, you've helped out with. All right back at you. So we live in this massive technology space of digital health, AI, blockchain, choose your bingo buzzword. What technology are you most excited about going into 2022 and beyond? I mean, virtual reality is, is certainly one technologies I think is going to have like a really insane impact on healthcare, but I'm a little biased there. I think we have not yet started to see the promise of robotics when it comes to surgery that it needs to continue to scale. And I think we need to really evaluate what do we want to accomplish with this? I think, you know, there's some kind of off the wall things. I'm like, can we treat things that we couldn't have treated before with robotics is something I haven't seen people pursue seriously. Um, When you can get on like a near atomic scale with a robot, like maybe you can treat cancer or tumors differently or or certain conditions that that could be really interesting. Or um, another thing with robotics is, look, there just aren't enough of people like you and me to go around, but there are a lot of mid-level providers and and sort of people who are faster to train and cheaper to train. And can we, with supervision and robotics, maybe enable them to do more and take care of more people? And so I think that's an area that I'm really excited about. I think we don't talk enough about mRNA technology and some of the huge success we've seen with that. And then, you know, CRISPR, I think, has just been completely obliterated PR-wise by everything that's going on, but, you know, still is an incredibly exciting technology from a therapeutic and diagnostic standpoint. So there's a lot. I think I'm <laughs> I'm following Web3 very closely, but you know, I'm I'm that guy, right? Where I'm like, I can't tell the the difference between uh, you know, something that's a flash in the pan or something that's gonna be the next big thing. And I think it really is important for us to humble ourselves even when we're deep in technology and innovation. So continue to watch that, not sure which way it's gonna go. Yeah, absolutely. So, so true. And the last thing, what are you reading now? Well, I mean, I'm I'm reading the Pizza Bible kind of daily you know, always just looking back at it for reference or good stories. That's really how I got my start in the world of pizza. And then I'm also reading uh, The Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz. You know, what's really, it's probably my favorite startup book because it basically only talks about failure and things that don't go well um, and doesn't really make anybody look good, which I find startup books so self-congratulatory and like, here's how I solved the problem, right? And it's like, I kind of want to see more of like, how did you emotionally deal with 
you know, a thousand catastrophes a day. And what's interesting is I read it, you know, really early on in Oso, and it was incredibly useful then. And then reading it now that we're over 150 people, we've raised 43 million. It's like, I'm just seeing it through a new light. We're just dealing with different challenges so that the same sentences and paragraphs have different meaning to me now. So it's been interesting to kind of revisit it. So that's what I'm reading currently. Yeah, we used to talk about like House of God having to read it like multiple times throughout your career, but this is definitely another one of those. And the last and most important question, where is the best pizza? So, you know, a lot of people have told me Pepe's Pizza in New Haven. I've not been there yet, but I will say that Rosie's Pizza in Point Pleasant Beach, New Jersey is the best pizza I've had in the U.S. Wow. I'm in New York, so I got to go down and check it out then. Justin, I can't thank you enough. This was awesome. I think the uh, listeners are really going to get a lot out of this. How do people find out more about you, find out more about Oso, and how do they get in contact? Yeah, you can check out OsoVR at OSSOVR.com. You can also follow me on LinkedIn or Twitter at JBHungry, Justin Broad on LinkedIn. And if anyone is interested in not only VR or surgical training, but like you, one of my life goals is just to encourage sort of healthy innovation and other healthcare professionals and help people through a lot of the challenges that you and I have faced. That's something I really want to help with. So please reach out. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Backtable Innovation on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable Innovation is produced and hosted by Brian Hartley, Aaron Fritz, and Eric Gamaker. Our audio team lead is Karen Gannon, with support from Caleb Hodson and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz, with support from Ann Dang. Social media and PR by Chi Dang. And Dana Parker. Thanks again for listening. See you again next week.